I caught the live-action West Wing episode this weekend on HBO Max. Made me yearn for a day of idealistic politics. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Chris Warnowski. Jen Cahoon returns tomorrow. You guys West Wing fans? Uh, not not really. A little too pie in the sky for my, my taste, but uh, I, I like some of Sorkin's stuff idealistic i mean we need a little bit of idealism don't you think <laughs> people who do things for the right reason not for all the bad reasons we've seen in the last four years who was it who said inside every cynical person is a disappointed idealist <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> all right let's begin why is a call to bay village police about a homeless person on a park bench getting so much attention Chris Wernowski, this is this this would seem on the surface to be a very light, insubstantial story, but it's really not because of what it says about us as a community, which was the purpose of what happened on this bench. I think they were trying to spark this kind of discussion. What happened? Right. I think they were trying to spark this kind of discussion, but I don't think they were trying to spark it 20 minutes after they installed this statue. <laughs> the St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in uh in Bay Village installed this this homeless Jesus statue uh, through a collaboration with the uh, Community West Foundation. And the statue is sort of designed to show, you know, it's sort of it's designed to sort of humanize the idea of homelessness that that, you know, that we sort of tend to step over people who are unhoused and, and people who are struggling. And and within 20 minutes of installing this statue, somebody called the police to say that there was a homeless person sleeping on a bench and to the to the caller's credit she did say that she wasn't sure if it was a statue or if it was a real person but once the officer got within about 50 feet of it it was pretty clear it wasn't a real person and so the the priest at this church you know tweeted this out and said within 20 minutes of the statue arriving i was having a conversation with a very kind police officer because someone called to report a homeless man sleeping on a park bench and this you know, you're right. I mean, it does sort of, it, it comes, it, it really sort of illustrates what I think they're trying to point out here, which is, you know, we, we criminalize this. We, you know, we, we sort of shame people who are in this, in this position. And, and here we are, you know, this became a, a pretty viral story, but you know, is it, is it, is it going to sort of draw attention to this issue or is it just going to be something that people sort of laugh at and move on with their lives? And well, I, I don't know. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to paint all of Bay Village with this brush. This was one person who called and said, I don't want a homeless person sleeping in my town. Police do something. But does it cause people in Bay Village to do a little self-reflection on like, you know, well, but but, this? but I look, I've I've been in court. I, I was in an appeals court down in Atlanta many years ago when there were civic leaders from a, a Florida community fighting the ability to feed homeless people in a public park. You know, you you have these fights going on all around the country. I mean, go go look under the 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 shoreway bridge that goes over um i think it's 28th or 25th street they installed rocks under the bridge so people who don't have homes can't sleep under there you know I, it's illustrative that that we is especially i i want to say especially progressive people talk like a really good game about helping homeless people but but when you sort of start to look around the edges of their communities and how 
you know, unwelcoming a lot of those communities can be to people who don't have places to live. It's, it's kind of interesting. And, and it's a problem that we just, we continue to wrestle with and, and, and we continue to spend money on and, and, and we still seem to find no solution other than, well, let's just call the police on them and, and let's, you know, well, if there's no shelter, you know, I mean, our shelters fill up quickly. And so I, I think, I think what this church is doing is a, is a, is a good thing. And I think it's provoking a good discussion. And look, Mm -hmm. the caller might've been concerned for the homeless person and been thinking the police might be able to assist them. We don't know the motive. It just was striking Mm -hmm. that 20 minutes after a homeless person appears in Bay village, somebody calls the police and that's why it went viral. It was everywhere. You couldn't, uh, you could not see that image in social media this weekend. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How might racial equity figure into future decisions about highway interchanges in Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, Steve Litt did a tremendously thoughtful story this weekend, published yesterday online and in The Plain Dealer, looking at the the idea of how highways and highway interchanges have increased poverty in the inner ring while increasing wealth in the outer ring, and then listing a whole bunch of proposed interchanges that could be affected by this. So what's going on? Who's pushing this idea that we need to think about racial equity and the economy as we entertain expanding our highway system? So this is NOACA, the Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, which oversees millions of dollars in federal and state spending on transportation in Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, Lorraine, and Medina County. So that's a big swath of Northeast Ohio. And the history of highway interchanges starting in the late 50s is that they have served these massive drivers of development, and they're transferring that land value from the clustered inner city and making it really easy for people to get out into what was very you know undeveloped green rural land and so you you've seen all of these things where you see the old kmarts or the shopping centers are just abandoned and they just build one you know another 10 20 miles out and people can get there very easily because they're driving 70 miles an hour so the question is whether noaca should be able to keep enabling outward expansions when the overall population of Cuyahoga County and their surrounding six counties is flat. And what this does is, you know, there's not new people moving in. There's not more money coming in. So they're just redistributing the wealth. So there's this 24 member committee that voted to recommend approval of a draft policy that would require studying the cost benefits of racial and economic equity when it determines whether to approve new highway interchanges. So that's going to be a big factor in addition to traffic flow and safety. And the full board of directors, which includes a lot of the members of governing bodies throughout Northeast Ohio, is going to consider this policy in December. The difficult thing, there's multiple facets to this that are that are challenging. One is ODOT doesn't care. They do whatever they want. They just propose widening uh, what was it, 77 down by Summit County to ease the commuting, even though this would do exactly what what they're talking about at NOACA. The, the idea of landowners in that outlying areas wanting value for their property is, is another key. They're, they're going to say, hey, I own this land. You're depriving me of the use of it. Um, greed drives policy a lot of times the campaign contributions from those folks can alter what's going on noaca might want to do the right thing but man they could be standing against some pretty strong headwinds 
Yeah, they did get a lot of support for this. The mayor of Solon, which if you think about it, is one of the most booming outer burbs, is really in favor of this. Um, Steve Litt did some really good work on this. He showed, he analyzed some Ohio Department of Taxation data from 1960 to 2018. It showed that Cleveland was the biggest loser in all of that. It had a tax base that fell 66% from $14.1 billion to $4.8 billion. Akron was the second biggest loser. The biggest winner, and this seems fitting, is Strongsville. Saw an 896% increase in property tax base. And if you think about it, I was in high school when they built the South Park Center out there and the, the big mall. And it's like everything just congregated to that. And that was all because of highways because it was easy to get to. And, you know, they put in the right number of turning lanes. And so you weren't like driving through a town to get there. People could drive there all over on 271 or 71. So all the top 10 communities in tax base are really far out communities. And it really does make you think about why are they spending my tax money to send people to Southern Medina County, right? Well, let me Which push is- back on the on the idea of Solon. Solon would fight this because Solon is sitting pretty. They've got the access. They've got the huge business base. If more places open up, outside of that ring, Solon could lose them. I mean, that's not some altruistic thing Solon's doing. Solon's like, we got mine. I want to keep mine. (laughs) And that's what this is always about. Each case. Look, it gets back to the idea that we don't have regional planning and we have 8 million municipalities all fighting for theirs. And because of that, because we have all these competing interests, I, you know, I think NOAC is going to have a hard time making it stick. It's really laudable what they did. The mayor of Maple Heights, who's on that committee, was was great in the story, talking about how this kind of thing devastated her city, and we need to think about it. But I think there will be some real challenges, not least of which is our legislature, right? I mean, look, we, we talk about this all the time. We have rural bumpkin overlords in, in these urban centers, people who don't care about the cities pass laws that restrain what the urban core can do. Do you think that if if developers go to those rural legislators and give them a few bucks in campaign contributions, they won't immediately pass a law stopping NOACA from doing what it's doing? Come on, be real. That's happened over and over and over. I don't disagree with you. And this has been happening for 50 years now. But I, I hope that people look at it and even if it's like some rural, you know, legislator in Southern whatever county that's going to get a new interchange, like eventually it's going to happen to you. There is no new money coming in. It's just spreading the peanut butter thinner and it hurts everyone in the long run. I, I mean, Laura, these are guys that are trying to get the governor indicted. I mean, we we're not we dealing with great intellect. I, know. I, just, I don't and see we've it. We've been talking about regionalism like, like seriously about it since I came to the place dealer in 2007. So like, when are we going to do something about it? And I know is really doing something um, smart, thoughtful, long range thinking, but, but I hope they understand what they're in for with the forces that'll be against them. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Will Cleveland school students get back to the classroom in 2020? Chris Warnowski, the explosion in coronavirus cases over the past week. We had three days of records, including on a Saturday when we usually have a depressed number. 
has completely changed the conversation in one week. All these districts that had been away that were thinking of coming back or challenged. Cleveland Schools is is the most challenged district in our area. A whole lot of kids that don't have the broadband access they need really need to be back in the classroom they're not going to get there, are they? No, this is this is some sad news, I guess, for for Cleveland students because Eric Gordon said uh, last week that since we have returned to red status, which is the level three coronavirus risk as defined by the governor in the state of Ohio, that we are indefinitely delaying a plan to return school uh, students back to their school buildings and in person instruction until after the first of the year, at least. So. Cleveland schools has a pretty high population of, of vulnerable students. So, you know, it's, it, it bodes well for them to not, to make this move, but it doesn't speak well for where we are in fighting this coronavirus. The, it, he said it was the best move for the district, which contains populations vulnerable to the coronavirus to stay in remote learning through winter break in December. So, you know, that affects 37,000 students. And that's that's a lot of people. And this is a, a big change very quickly. And, and I know parents and people were eager to sort of get their kids back to school, but it ain't happening for a while. Well, our columnist, Layla Atassi, is doing some work on how challenged the district is. It's a special case and how the education really isn't working for the kids in remote learning. Uh, that should be coming up in the next couple of weeks. But this is bad news for that because without those kids in the classroom, a lot of them aren't learning. We had a outrage in the Orange School District over a similar decision. They decided they're not coming back either, and parents are not happy about that. Right, Laura Johnson? Yeah, they're not. They had about 11 people that showed up to a board of education meeting to protest uh, that decision because they want their kids in school. But I got to tell you, as a parent, I know we've talked about this a whole lot on this podcast, and I'm glad my kids are going even half days. But this is you look at the numbers and you're like, you know, how long is it going to continue? Because if it's going to be 2,500 new cases in Ohio every day, like it's not going to last <laughs> that much no. longer. We're, and, we're, um, with, this, with the curve we're on, which we'll talk about here in a minute, I believe that all the schools are going to send the kids home because it's getting out of control. We're following the path of the 1918 pandemic. So let's get to that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio hit a third coronavirus record in three days Saturday. What were the weekend numbers? Laura Johnston, the coronavirus dominates our conversation. And in the past week, it really should. Things are out of control. Yeah. So the Saturday number, when I saw this, I was like, what? Um, 2,234 new coronavirus cases, which on a Saturday, normally we see smaller numbers on Saturday and Sunday just because of, uh, I think, the weekend and people not working. So that we had less than a thousand a couple of cases, a thousand cases a day, like, I don't know, a month ago. So, I mean, we're, we're triple some of those numbers at this point. Friday, we had 21, uh, so 2,148 cases. That was 30 less than the previous record we set on Thursday, which was 2,178. Uh, Sunday was a little bit lower at about 1,500. But, I mean, we set three records in a row. We set five records in a week. We're at a total of 181,787 cases, 5,067 deaths. We still don't know why exactly cases are skyrocketing because 
say it all the time. We don't have definitive contact tracing information in Ohio. All we know is family gatherings, weddings, funerals, that people aren't wearing masks at those events. And yeah, it's becoming more and more inexcusable for the governor to not insist that his health department collate that data. They can do it. It's all in an ancient database, ancient 2001. But if they put some people on that to put it into something like a spreadsheet, they could figure out tomorrow how it's spreading. And with what we're seeing now, it's inexcusable that they haven't done so. Look, this curve is is shocking. If you follow this curve and you plot it out for the next two weeks, two weeks from now, we're going to have 5,000 people getting it a day. We're going to have it spreading everywhere, which is why I don't think schools can stay open. I mean, people are going to have to cloister in their houses again, whether the, the state gets shut down or not. This is frightening, and it's not just here. It's across the globe. It's across the country. Italy is is back into a gigantic surge, one of the first countries to get hit that got it under control. All the predictions about the cold weather are coming true. And, and if you follow the 1918 path, which, man, we are following it step by step, things are going to get bad. The only thing we're not seeing that we saw in 1918, as is the fall hit, deaths skyrocketed. We haven't seen that. 1918 was a flu. This is a coronavirus. Yeah, I hope we don't see that. And the whole, we talked about this a lot in the beginning, that the idea of keeping everyone home was so that the hospital systems didn't get overwhelmed. And I'm really hoping that we are seeing a lot more cases that they're going to be mild cases that we're not going to see that giant influx of ICU. Well, that's not what our data guru, Rich Exner, thinks. Rich <laughs> Exner sent me, I sent him that number Saturday and said, uh-oh, you know, we don't have a depressed number on a weekend. That's a bad sign. And he said he really is fr- afraid of what we're going to see in two weeks because those hospitalizations have pretty much mirrored the number just with a two-week delay. So we'll have to see. Uh, it's a frightening moment in the uh, coronavirus trend. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did federal prosecutors demand from Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost as they closed in on arresting former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder? Chris Ranowski, this was a subpoena that escaped notice for months, but now it's in the public eye. What did they want? Right. So federal federal officials investigating the HB6 bribery scandal subpoenaed records from Yost's office the day before arresting then House Speaker Larry Householder and four allies. The subpoena that was issued uh, July 20th sought records related to an attempt to stage a statewide referendum to overturn HB6, the controversial energy law that that gave a billion dollars to First Energy and its subsidiaries. Um, the, the referendum was, uh, spearheaded by an organization called, uh, it was an Ohioans against corporate bailouts and Ohioans for energy security, which were the main groups that were against it. And the subpoena demanded the AG's offices records related to those groups. Yost had sort of initially rejected the proposed language of the referendum, um, to repeal it. In August 2019, while he approved a revised draft of about, about three weeks later, HB6 opponents cited the delay as one reason that they couldn't get enough voter signatures by October deadline to put the measure on the ballot. So, it's, I mean, it's interesting, you know, because th- this this happened like the day before they arrested Householder. And, and one of the things that they stressed in the press conference that was held the day of it is how 
how sort of close to the chest they sort of kept their cards on this investigation. And we kind of wondered why, you know, Yost wasn't more involved in this. And it's they were not letting anybody know what they were investigating because well, they, they were worried that it would get out in the sort of gossip mills. Well, well <laughs> we wondered why it was why Yost wasn't investigating this. I mean, this is he's the attorney general. A clearly a, a bribery scheme of this magnitude would fall in his purview. And, you know, he's been too busy doing phantom investigations in Cuyahoga County. So that's what we wondered. He his role. I mean, it's weird. This is weird. His role in this is to certify the language of the ballot to right. say whether it's legal or not. And you're right. He rejected it and it took weeks to get it approved. And Ohio has this unfair thing that the clock starts ticking when you submit it, not after the attorney general approves it. And because of all of that delay, like you said, they lost weeks. They went to court to say this is unfair. Ultimately, that's probably going to have to be litigated because it does seem unfair. It's, there's if if the law is set up to give you a specific number of days to collect signatures and then you have this variable period that is the whim of the attorney general, how is that right? I mean, that just doesn't seem like it's an even playing field, but it's odd that they're they're going after records. I mean, it's almost like, did you get correspondence from the anti people trying to get you to delay this as part of the conspiracy to to kill it? It's I'll be curious to see what he turned over. I don't know if we can get that though, because it's going to be investigatory records. Probably we'll see, but interesting case. Yeah. We can always ask, (laughs) you know, it's interesting that they've said, you know, the word has been that more people will get arrested, but you get the feeling that they really can't do much until after the election because they don't want to be accused of being Comey and trying to change election results at the last minute. Remember what he did four years ago. Um, so I, I suspect that once the election's over, we'll see some activity. But very interesting development. I, I have to say, if, if this isn't factoring into how you're voting, shame on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this should already be impacting the the election. But but, you know. Who am I to judge? Right. Every state legislator who hasn't repealed this thing has some explaining to do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does our data guru, Rich Exner, say that Cuyahoga County is likely to remain in the red coronavirus zone for a while after returning to it last week? Laura Johnston, we started out in the red and we were all very excited when we got it under control and went to orange. So when we bounced back into the red last week, the thinking was, okay, you know, maybe we can make an adjustment. Rich Exner doesn't think so. No, I know. And I, for a while, I think we were thinking, oh, maybe we can get to yellow, but we just never did. So these three areas that put Cuyahoga County in the red are going to stick a while, uh, stick around a while. New cases, doctor visits, and emergency room visits are measured by whether there were at least five consecutive days of increases at any point in the last three weeks. So by definition, Two of those are going to remain true for the next two weeks because one was the week before. So there are seven indicators that overall counties flag for concern have four or five. We have five of those indicators. That includes the number of new cases per 100,000 residents over the last two weeks. Um, Cuyahoga had 72.63 people uh, for every 100,000 in the uh, latest report, which is actually really low compared to some of the other counties. The threshold for the warning flag is 50, though. Well, you know, I was talking to Rich last week, and he's he's thinking about doing a story questioning some of the parameters they used for this. He thinks that some of them are not accurate or, or not legitimate, and there might be other ones that you could 
play with. Um, so, so it'll be interesting to see when he does that. It does have a bit of arbitrariness to it. How did yeah. they pick the day, the, the numbers you're discussing? How do they pick these parameters? There are other parameters. There was a, there's another, I can't remember the name of the website, but there's a website that does coronavirus tracking in such a way that's different than our health department that has Ohio as number one in the nation right now for the, the speed of its spread. Oh. But but it's not the way it's measured in Ohio. So we don't look that way. I'll look for Rich to explain it all. But he had some very good arguments for why this feels a little bit arbitrary. Yeah, like one of these flags is that 84 of the 88 counties have. And that's for a high share of cases outside congregate living spaces. So if you're going to come up with a differentiator between the counties. But 84 of them are all meeting one of these, this one requirement. It seems like. That's probably not a good measure at this point. Yeah, that was one of the ones that Rich uh, mentioned when he talked about it. So we'll have to look for that. It's this week in the CLE. Are federal prosecutors right to tout the number of gun arrests in Northeast Ohio, or are critics right in saying the arrests are an election year stunt? Chris Ranowski, the the president, has been big on law and order ever since the social justice protests began this year. He sent teams in to do Operation Legend and take guns off the street. It's unmistakable to say we've seen a gigantic surge in gun violence in Cleveland. Is this legit or is it not? That's the thing is that I think it, you know, you could you could make a, a good faith argument on both sides of this. You know, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Cleveland put out a press release last week that says that it had arrested, it had charged 328 people with weapons charges. And and that's compared to 125 in the same period in 2016 in the run up to that election. And, you know, U.S. US Attorney Justin Herdman, who, who you know, has has been a key figure in, in this, especially in the domestic violence side of getting people who commit domestic violence to get them arrested on gun charges. That's, that's a big thing in his, that has been a, f- a feature of his office. But the critics of, of this say that, that, that this is part of the sort of rise of the law and order rhetoric that has come out of not just the president's office, but the attorney general's office in the, in the run up to this election. And, uh, a couple of of civil rights attorneys here have sort of talked about just what what things like Operation Legend are doing, which is essentially using the arm of the the federal justice system to target uh, democratic cities like Portland, Chicago, and Cleveland. And I think what's important here, I want to read this to you because this is this is from an article in, in uh, the Wall Street Journal from 1992, and it says. Now that he has the country's top law enforcement job, Mr. Barr has put a heavy emphasis on attention-grabbing events and pronouncements that may have more to do with presidential election year politicking than fighting crime on the streets. Uh, Under Barr, urban gang violence, ordinarily considered a state or local police concern, has suddenly become the Justice Department's top priority. Quote, removing the deadly presence of gangs is the first step in reclaiming neighborhoods, Mr. Barr said at one of his recent press events. This is a very, very old story. You know, this is 20 some years old, 30 some years old, uh, 20 some. But it, it is it's the same song and dance that we heard back in the 1990s. All right. Wait, 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 wait. I'm going to push back on this like I want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is. We are seeing gun violence surge. Mm-hmm. And we've reported a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Herdman, when he came in replacing Steve Dettelbach, 
four years ago, three and a half years ago, one of the first things he did was disband Steve Dettelbach's social justice kind of stuff and said, I'm concentrating on gun violence. Cleveland police need help. It's out of control. And look, I can tell you anecdotally, Cleveland Heights people were wigging out this weekend at the Cedar Fairmount intersection. There's a gas station. And in the middle of the daytime, two guys with guns robbed a woman at the gas station as cars are driving by. It's been the talk of the town. We're seeing the gun violence spread into the suburbs. We've had two Baldwin Wallace students get carjacked by a kid from Cleveland. I mean, it's the gun violence is real. And so so is it a bad thing then that the Justice Department under Barr is out there saying we got to help these cities get it under control? This is dangerous. Well, it doesn't really get at why gun violence was an issue in 1992 when Bill Barr was the the attorney general. And it certainly doesn't speak to why it might be a problem right now. You know, in, in, in he- heading into the, you know, you got to think of the country in the final years of the elder Bush's presidency, you know. We, you know, we were facing economic challenges. We had, you know, a significant drug problem. We had a lot of issues. And, and, and not to say that Bill Clinton was the savior of the universe because Lord knows he, he did, did very little to, to help black communities and his, his crime bill certainly did hurt them. But, you know, it's, it, we, 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 we have to look at the other reasons for this. We can't just treat this as, as something that you punish on the back end. There, there's a reason we're at this point. And we've, and we've discussed this ad nauseum, I think, on this podcast. It's, it's, you know, poverty, lack of economic opportunity, influx of guns, you know, hopelessness, all the, all those things that exist that, you know, that, that, you know, we're not talking about. We're just talking about this as a law, a, a law and order issue. And, and, you know, we, and instead of treating it like the social issue that it really right. is. Right. I don't disagree. We mm-hmm. should treat it as a social issue. But for the person that's looking down the barrel of the gun as they're getting robbed, they're also looking for it to be a law enforcement issue as well, which is why I think these numbers are somewhat telling. These aren't fake gun crimes. These are real gun crimes they're prosecuting. But you're right. Well, the resources but, but I mean, are not going in to dealing with the sources of it. I got to I got to shut you down. We're out of time. It's this week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Tomorrow we'll have Jane back. Everybody, thank you for listening to this week in the CLE.